Hello and welcome to the Amateur Skeptic Show. This is show number one. I'm your host, Brian. With me this evening is Ian. And this this is where you say hello. Okay, alright. Also with tonight, I have Jennifer. Hello. And I have Mac. Or Sean. What are we calling you, Mac or Sean? They're interchangeable. They're interchangeable. That that's good because you know Sean is just odd. I <laughs> never one. referred to him as Sean. Just, oh, I spelled spell it wrong, Mac didn't I? Backwards, you get yeah. <laughs> you spell Mac backwards, you get Sean. But if you spell Sean backwards, I return to my home dimension. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so. Yay. <laughs> So we're going to talk about some logical fallacies tonight. Um, uh, and but uh, first, uh, we're going to uh, we got um, Ian and I went out and met the Denver skeptics. Uh, was that last Thursday or the thir- Thursday before? Last uh, Thursday. No, last Thursday. Last Thursday. Yep. And we so we went out and we we met the Denver skeptics, and I, I th- that was a lot of fun. We went and we were we drank skeptically. So, yeah, hello to all you guys if you actually were following through with checking us out. That'd be great. <laughs> yep, yeah. And, you know, one, one of the people that we did meet um, while we were down there, we met Rich from the uh, Dogma Free America podcast. And, uh, actually, I, I, I'm loving his podcast. It, it, it's pretty good. Uh, he the, he is some uh, – he, you know, he's pretty – he finds a lot of really good um, uh, stuff th- actually throughout the world. Um, this last, po- last podcast, I mean – he was, you know, of course, you know, Haiti was one of the things, and he talked about um, um, some Mexican church that was sending um, Bibles down to uh, down to Haiti, and and not just Bibles. These are um, solar panel. They have solar panels on them, so that the Bibles can be read aloud. The Bible reads itself to you, and apparently, they really need okay. these in Haiti. Yeah. Yeah, much more than food and medicine and yeah, no, itself to rebuild. No, 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 no. Because you know, because you know, they because they signed that contract with Satan. They they really need Bibles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Everybody hear about all better Pat Roberts. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, because they signed that contract with Satan, don't they need contract lawyers? But we haven't sent any lawyers down there. Yes. <laughs> so we had a good time out meeting the Denver skeptics. It was a good time, and I and I'm really enjoying the Dogma Free America podcast. So, so uh, that that's been that's been a lot of fun actually. So uh, moving on. Actually, oh, go Brian, ahead, Brian. Let me cut in real quick. Yeah. you might want to explain the whole contract with Satan thing. Oh, the Pet Roberts. Pet Roberts came out and said that right. um, that uh, the people of Haiti. You know, we used to be basically enslaved by the French, and to get out from underneath the rule of the French, they signed a contract with the devil because they couldn't have done it on their own. You see, yeah, uh, the, the whole idea seems to be based off the basic Christian irrationality and ignorance over like voodoo and stuff. You know, because yes, the, the people that incited the revolt were, you know, practiced the art of voodoo, and apparently there was a pig sacrificed. When the uh, the heads of this group made a pledge to each other to rid the island of the French, somehow that got turned into a deal with the devil. So you know, it, it's actually more of ignorance over other people's religious ideas than it is with anything substantial. I was going to say that uh, no comp- no country in the history of the world has ever successfully had a revolution and overthrown a overthrown a tyrannical government. Oh wait, United States. Forgot about that one. Yeah, we made a deal with the <laughs> devil. We know that. <laughs> Actually, it was the French that helped us, right? Right, we made a deal with the devil. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, do we need a uh if you're a French listener of uh <laughs> <laughs> Yes, no offense. You know <laughs> not trying to and of course. And of course, the standard disclaimer, we here at AmateurSkeptics.com do not actually believe that the Haitians have signed a contract with the devil. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, so no, that, that whole thing was a little uh, – I mean, Pat – and I think – I don't know, you know, Pat – there was definitely some pushback on Pat Roberts for that, I think. 
And actually, there's a really good YouTube video of the uh, the son um, of the um, of the people who actually started that um, uh, revolution um, coming out and speaking about it. So that, that's a pretty there's a there's a YouTube video out there um, with that that actually was very good. Of the descendant, you mean? Yes, I'm sorry. Of the sorry, descendant. It yeah, yeah, it wasn't his. It was it was his. Yeah, I'm sorry. It wasn't his. A couple of years ago, yeah. it'd be hard to be his son. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. A descendant. I but, just figured he moisturized and wore big floppy hats for the skin. <laughs> I mean, of course, he attributed it to God, and because God made all people equal, and you know, okay, that's fine. You know, well, that's the thing. To me, the Christians would make more sense to be trying to say that God helped free themselves from slavery than Satan. Sure, sure, but you know, quite frankly, I mean, we cannot discount the, you know the the people who probably spilled blood to make that happen. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that Pat Roberts does by uh, by attributing it that way. Oh, yeah. Is that he really discounts the hard work that those people did to you know to claim their freedom, and that's well, unfortunate. The whole revolution. Sure. Okay, so what do we want to start with tonight? I don't know, Jen. Well, you know, we could just go ahead and segue into could homeopathy homeopathy hurt uh, Haiti? Well, you want to segue into that? Okay. <laughs> Drop so okay, okay, so so Haiti or uh, <laughs> could homeopathy hurt Haiti? And of course, well, I, I have issues with you know placebo and and people knowingly giving people placebo anyway. It it's it's a hot button for me, particularly because of homeopathy, because because it is a placebo. There isn't any scientific efficacy for it. None of it has been proven, and on the face of it, you know it. It defies physics as we know it. it you don't believe in the memory capabilities of water? No. I do believe in the memory-erasing memory capabilities of alcohol, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think we should sort of clarify what homeopathy is because I knew plenty of people who, once I moved to Colorado, it wasn't something I had ever heard of when I lived back east. Okay. But having moved to Colorado, I heard plenty of people say, oh, I found this homeopathic remedy for this. And I just figured it was herbs, natural remedies, but it's even more ridiculous than that. Okay. So I have a, I have a good website, actually, that, that goes through this. Um, well, there's an, an entire process of diluting and diluting and diluting and diluting and diluting right so basically this is what it is is that okay homeopathy the idea is that like cures like so if you want to cure something you have to get something that would essentially cause that and then you you have to dilute it so many times and the and you have to you know you have to have, hold a leather glove and you have to shake it in certain directions and and then you dilute it. You do this as you dilute it. And the idea is by doing these actions as you dilute it, that it's going to carry the memory of whatever thing you had put in it. Originally. Originally. And then, so by the time that that is is done, you dilute it like a hundred times, wasn't it? Well, some of them are a hundred dilution. Some of them are two hundred dilution. So extreme, extreme, extreme. Extreme dilutions. And so after they've done that, the idea is that it, then they they take just like a drop of it, and they'll they I mean they'll you, you they might put that into water, or they might put it onto a sugar pill, and that's how you would ingest it. And so the idea is that it carries the memory of that thing. But okay, let's face it, where does all of our water eventually go down? Yeah. Dude, the idea that water has a memory like that's kind of scary because you, you realize how many people's uh, waste products you're drinking then every time you drink water. Exactly. <laughs> it has the memory of my feces. And exactly. probably a good couple million other people's feces. Exactly. Can I get you a glass of water? <laughs> I mean, realistically, the sea is a homeopathic disaster. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... That's the the lunacy of it, right? I mean, that's... Right. Here's my take on this, okay. is that even if homeopathy, by some, by some stretch of things, actually works in some cases, what exactly are they sending homeopathy to the Haitians for? I mean, 
they've been in an earthquake. Okay. They've been banged yeah. up. They want to they've send cuts, broken bones. I, do they are they sending homeopathic kits with very very small rocks to make <laughs> them into larger rocks? Yeah. <laughs> what they did was they went to a hospital. They took a person who was near death. They they put them in water. <laughs> oh oh! The homeopaths cut him off. <laughs> it's like okay, well, so now we have a near death guy whose memory is in this water. So we drink, we give them that water, and they'll miraculously be cured. Ah, uh, that would work by homeopathic uh, okay. ideas. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And the All fact right. that he was cut off, though, that is proof you've heard right here on AmateurSkeptics.com of the homeopathic conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The homeopathic agenda. All right. So what they want to do is they want to send homeopathic first aid kits. But, of course, they've got to teach people how to use these kits. Uh, you know, I was reading on some homeopathy site, you know, that, that you know, they're still trying to collect the money for this. I, I don't know if, they, if they've actually gotten the funds or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, and, you know, they want to get them to the Red Cross and teach them how to use them and all this. So, but, so here's my thing, uh, particularly with homeopathy, is that – it's one thing for somebody in the United States who has access to medical care, somebody in Canada, somebody in England, some I mean places where we have health care, particularly places where they have, you know, nationalized health care and they, they walk in and they get treated, right? For them to seek an alternative remedy. It's another for people who don't have an alternative for you to send them something that has no scientific efficacy at all. Something that hasn't been proven. You're gonna see. You want to send into a place where we don't need to be taking more risks. Yeah, much like sending the Bibles in there. Exactly, much like sending like, the Bibles you know, in there. The money and effort could be put to stuff that can be proven to make a difference to them. Exactly. Heck, send blankets. <laughs> yeah. You know. I think a band aid is gonna do a lot more than all the homeopathic remedies in the world down there. Exactly, exactly. Okay. That's that's the problem on the face of it, right? I think that it's a luxury of living in a in a wealthy society to be able to waste search out to waste your money on yeah, right, to, to waste your money on remedies that don't have any positive effect. Proven positive effect, I should say, because if they can prove it, then it becomes medicine. It's no longer alternative medicine. If we can prove that it works, doctors will prescribe it. Right. So, so alternative medicine ends up being a whole bunch of therapies without efficacy. So this, uh, I, I linked to uh, Kirsten Sanford's blog, and, and I like this because she, she, this particular one had, um, it had, it had her take on it, and it had, and it had Simon Singh's take on it, and and so he was talking about, he goes through in here, and he talks about the harm of, uh, of sending him in. Okay, this this was interesting. He says, unfortunately, uh, homeopathy can have surprising and dangerous side effects. These having nothing to do with directly with any particular homeopathic remedy, but rather they are an indirect result of what happens when homeopathists replace doctors as sources of medical advice. And I think that this is particularly important because these people that are prescribing these homeopathic treatments don't really have the skills necessary to diagnose them in the first place. For example, many, many homeopaths have a negative attitude towards immunization. So parents who are in regular contact with a homeopath may be less likely to immunize their child. The greatest danger occurs when homeopathy replaces a conventional treatment. The thing that struck me about that is, is not the basis of homeopathy immunization? Well, it isn't immunization. That's the thing. Is but it, it is. You're basically taking a little bit of something to treat a lot of it. To stimulate your body to fight off. Something. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's immunization. <laughs> on, on the face of it, it is immunization. Uh, okay, but after a 200 dilution, I, I challenge you to find one molecule of whatever you put in there. No, no, I'm not saying that the, the, homeopath, the homeopathic remedies are effective. I'm <laughs> saying that the philosophy behind it is the same philosophy behind immunization. True. Okay, okay. But it's not taken from the scientific point of view. It's taken from a rather… Right. I'm just talking uh, about the uh, fact that the homeopath's viewpoint on this seems to be inconsistent. Well, that's not surprising. 
No. But of course, homeopathy is not what got rid of smallpox. That was proven vaccinations. I mean, let, let's go on to talk about the vaccines. The next one that she has in here is from the Science-Based Medicine blog. They have a lot of good contributors over there. This is where they actually start to talk about the vaccinations. And in particular, he goes in to talk about tetanus. And he's talking about how only about 50% of uh, the children over there are, have been immunized against tetanus. So that means that they have a large population of people who are liable to get tetanus. And actually, this is really interesting talk about tetanus, and it's found in the soil and particularly in rich soils. So particularly in this situation, I think the, the chances of getting tetanus are particularly high. And with, oh, yeah. and with so many people not being vaccinated against it, they need to make sure that they have proper treatments down there for this because without proper treatment, this is 100% fatal. And if you want to anti and if you want to vaccinate them, you know, the homeopaths would would recommend a homeopathic vaccination, something that has never been proven to work. Right. If anti-vaccination advocates succeed in influencing the policies of the U.S. and other governments, right. as other fringe health activists have done, they may become morally compl complicit in the deaths of thousands of Haitians. So, yeah. Well, basically, um, your homeopaths are a, a religious group, you know, and they are trying to push their religious ideas on everyone else. Rather spend money doing that than doing something more productive. I, I hate to lump them that way. I, I hate to. I, I hate to. I, I hate to do that because you know those are the same kinds of terms that they that they like to use against us when we're talking about evolution, and I don't know that it quite adds up the same. Yeah, but it is but, a belief system. Yeah, it's okay. definitely a belief, and it, right. it they treat it at, just as religiously as you know any other member of religious belief. Okay, you know. My 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 problem with with this treatment is that they, that they haven't proven it to work. If they take one of these and they prove that it's actually effective, I'm all for it. Right. But as it stands right now, every you know double blind placebo placebo test with homeopathy has been a failure. So to send this to a place where we need to make sure that we're sending medicines that we know to be effective and viable is is not an option. It's not a luxury that we have. Agreed. All right. Do we have something more positive to move on to? <laughs> well, I'm sure we do. <laughs> now, Brian, you're you're very anti-placebo, and I I feel that I should put a, a you know a differing viewpoint in this. Okay. I believe there's nothing better than placebo for certain illnesses, like psychosomatic <laughs> hypochondria. Is there's nothing better than a placebo for treating that? <laughs> 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 it affects a lot of Americans. It's not a funny thing. Placebo has its place, but in place of known effective treatments, is certainly not one of them. Yes. It's unethical for somebody who knows that it's a placebo to prescribe it. Rovers give NASA an opportunity to view interior of Mars. So th this is the kind of thing we want to put out there for everyone to hear. Good science, science that, you know, works, that's been proven, that actually inspires and hopefully will take us new places. You know, so not a, w we want to do more than just criticize bad science here. We want to encourage good science as well. So this is the kind of story that encourages good science. Uh, basically what has happened is um, one of our rovers on Mars found a rock that um, due to the um, crystal composition of it, they know that it had to have cooled slowly, which would suggest that it came from down in the planet. And the advantage to this is basically it's like finding, in one area, finding rock from another area so that you can actually get more information than just what's local. Because they know they're pretty sure this rock came from a whole different area than where they found it. So while that that means that they don't have to do as much exploring to learn as much about the planet. They think they found Run. this rock because um it was it uh, volcanic activity. Is that the reason it's on the surface? Yes. So why was it? Yeah. So covered? the figure basically got shot out by a volcano and went flying. Okay. Did, and they don't. Did they say well, why they thought it was why it wasn't covered up by other soot and stuff? I don't remember seeing anything specific on that. Although one thing, you, they still had to dig into it like any other rock. Right. You know, they still took the, the probe, still dug along. Oh, hey, look, there's a different composition underneath. So there was still some. You know, you look at the picture, you can see right where they. Dug
dug into it. So, yeah, they still had to dig into it to find out. That's a standard thing. Just the fact that it has such a different composition to the other rocks around there, you know, can give them so much more information in a smaller space. That's an incredible find. Yeah, that is. And what's neat about this is that the reason that they found this is because of the, the those rovers have operated so long beyond what they were expected to oh, yeah. that they could take some risks here, and they decided to go ahead and take a 12-mile journey and they found this on the 12-mile journey to um, to another place that they wanted to go investigate. So I thought that was pretty neat that the only reason we found this is because they felt like they could take a risk with the rover. It definitely shows our ingenuity. You know, these rovers have been lasting so much longer now. You know, the article says that right now it's been working 24 times longer than the original plan. So you know, these guys just keep going, and that's great. That means you know more discovery for you know the same amount of money. And, you know, that definitely helps out big time because if they can make these projects last longer, you know, that's more information we have, that's more justification for doing more exploration and hopefully more encouragement to get us out there. I like good science. Well, and anything to yep. do with space. Well, that's true. Anything to do with space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially Mars. I'd we like all want to live on, on Mars. Mars. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, it would be fun. To, to see people go to Mars, actually be able to send people there. It would be nice no, to I, see I, a man on Mars in our lifetime. lifetime that was not naked and blue. <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like this will encourage us to get there. And Absolutely. So it, it's great to see it happening. You know, one of the proposals is for um, to send people there is that they may not be able to come back. And it, you'd be surprised yeah. how many people are, are fine <laughs> with that. They they just yeah, want to go. Yeah, if I, if they, yeah, dying on Mars is, is yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, now one of the proposals that I heard was to make a rocket that can basically basically be fueled by what they find on Mars, and it seemed like a pretty sensible proposal at the time. I, you know, well, basically they, they burn their fuel getting out there, and they use the right. surface of Mars as their fuel to come back because they know what it's made yeah. of and they well, know they can make fuel out of it. Yeah, any exploration of Mars, one of the big things will be, we just have to get them there. Once they get there, they'll be somewhat on their own, and they will have to figure out how to survive with what's there, which actually, that that alone should do tremendous steps for space exploration, because if you're there with bare minimums, it's like, you guys have to figure out how to survive, because we can't send any more to you. But, you know, this is humanity. We are going to figure out how to survive. They're going to sit back, and they're going to figure it out. They're going to find stuff. You know, the whole approach will change drastically when it's survival at, at stake. So that will be one big part to once we um, get man out to Mars is th- those first people there are going to have to do a tremendous job, you know, reorganizing exactly what we think survival is because they will be on a whole new frontier. They will not know all of what they have available to them, and they will really have to do some serious, serious exploring just to, you know, survive. All right. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yes, it is. Bomb detector maker Jim McCormick arrested. <laughs> Yay. Well, what this is, there are some companies that have been basically making dowsing rods uh, to look for bombs. And these were originally tested here in the United States, and they were found not to work. And they were – so they were disproven, and our court system said that they couldn't sell them. So the companies moved to – I'm pretty sure it was to, to England. They moved to Britain. And they started, you know, producing them and selling them. And they're selling these to Iraq and Afghanistan. They, and I think they've also tried to sell them to the German government and that. But the places where they've been successful selling them is Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, the people who use these things in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, of course, they swear by them, even though they've been proven not to work. And in this case, the BBC tested them and found them not to work. And so that's when they have um, they have arrested this gentleman, Jim McCormick. British government announced a ban on the exportation of devices to Iraq and Afghanistan. And it doesn't say when they did that, but they arrested this gentleman um, on Friday on suspicion of fraud and misrepresentation. Now, all it says on the articles earlier, so obviously before Friday is when they actually um, announced the ban. Right. So, so they, they did that first. They've probably been wanting to get this guy for a while, and they probably just, you know, finally. That's what it sounds yeah. like. So, yeah. so the devices are supposedly had a computer off it that's supposed to work on static electricity, and the BBC said that all that was was a anti-theft tag that you would use in uh, in shops to prevent you know 
the theft of yeah things of, going out the door yeah CDs and stuff like that kind of it kind of sounds like this guy had a whole bunch of spare parts that he assembled in an interesting way <sighs> it does sound like that and then sold them for forty thousand dollars each which, that's the part which, that just yeah. floors me it's a yeah. dowsing rod so we're in the wrong we're in the wrong business. Well, there is no money now, in skepticism. Actually, actually, dowsing rods are effective in disabling water balloons. <laughs> they have been known to detect and disarm water balloons. Yeah. You detect the water balloon with the dowsing rod, and then you poke the water balloon with the dowsing rod. Yeah. <laughs> did, did it says the Iraqi government has spent $85 million on these stupid things. I know, and they swear by them. They think they work. That's a sign of desperation, and that's very, very sad. You know, I'll tell you what. These dowsing rods are a heck of a lot more impressive than the ones they had at the psychic line, though. <laughs> yeah. Are these homeopathic dowsing rods? <laughs> Maybe they contain the – oh, wait, wait. The memory. The tags contain the memory of bombs. All right, all right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that sounds well, that like – that would a... explain how they can be powered by static electricity, then. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Protein may be a new target for obesity and diabetes therapies. The protein is called SIRT6, and it seems to be affected by different levels of stress. What they found, though, is that in the SRT6, the SIRT6 regulates the, the difference between when your body stores energy as fat or burns energy as movement. They tested on white mice. White mice with a low level of the SIRT6 in their system acted normally. They behaved perfectly normally, and then they died in like three weeks because they didn't have any reserves. The problem is that higher levels of SIRT6 can make you, you know, fat. Right, because okay. you're storing too Black much energy. More. So it's a matter of having a um, a proper amount, something that, uh, you know, uh, a balance. And, it, and having it regulated. Right. That's what they talk about. It is exactly. what, what so actually helps regulate it. The hope is that they can find a way to regulate it, so that they can, uh, you know, stop obesity and you know have a have a handle on diabetes. So, one form, at least. So this is the magic pill. <laughs> uh, it's maybe no, a start it's the, to the first magic pill. brick of the yellow brick road. You have to keep following it. <laughs> So that's exciting. So they may actually have some therapies to help people, you know, that are obese and need to lose weight. Absolutely. Great. Very interesting. So the ancient Sumerians looked on in confusion as God created the earth. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, this is from The Onion. For those who don't know, The Onion is a satirical paper. Um, but we just thought this was pretty funny because... We've all heard a few young earthers talk about how old the world is. If you go through the Bible and count up ages and what have you, you come up with a number of how old the earth actually is. And so... And they ignore, and they ignore carbon dating and all the science behind that. <laughs> Fossils are there to confuse you. Well, Ian, carbon dating comes from fire, and fire does come from the devil. Exactly. Or Prometheus. I, I've never gotten that one straight. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is responsible for it, huh? Exactly. Absolutely. One or the other. Prometheus is from mythology, so he obviously is the devil. So, right, because you know, anything that's not divine <laughs> has to be the other. Right. Yeah. All right. I'm going to read the first uh, three paragraphs of this because it was pretty funny. Uh, members of the Earth's earliest known civilization, the Sumerians, looked on in shock and confusion some 6,000 years ago as God, the Al Lord Almighty, created heaven and earth. According to recently excavated clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform script, thousands of Sumerians, the first humans to establish systems of writing, agriculture, and government, were working on their sophisticated irrigation systems when the father of all creation reached down from the other and blew the divine spirit of life into their thriving civilization. I do not understand, reads an ancient mind of pictographs depicting the sun, the moon, water, and a Sumerian who appears to be scratching his head. A booming voice is saying, let there be light, but there's already light. It is saying, let the earth bring forth grass, but I am already standing on grass. 
Everything is here already, the pictograph continues. We do not need more stars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the satire in this is the fact that the, the young Earth, the young Earthers believe the Earth was created in like 3000 BC, and the Sumerian civilization had been around since at least 2000 years before that. Right. <laughs> and if you don't know the Onion, uh, they are really, really good at writing a tongue-in-cheek article. Yes, they are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mac, you going to read the last paragraph? These two people made in his image do not know how to communicate, lack skills in both mathematics and farming, and have the intellectual capacity of an infant. One Sumerian philosopher wrote, they must be the creation of a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you know, that brings up a good point. Why would God create idiots? <laughs> uh, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that, that, that you know, Adam named place. all the animals, but he didn't name them in Latin, so he couldn't have been that educated. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so. <sighs> homeopathy website ordered to remove misleading material. This is great. So this actually happened in Australia. Um, two websites, Homeopathy Plus and www.d-n-h.org have been ordered to remove information suggesting homeopathic immunization is as effective as vaccination and issue a retraction following a complaint made to the to the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So this is good news um, because this is one of the things that, that has been concerning me is the homeopaths pushing for using homeopathy for immunizations uh, and having a whole bunch of people that are not immunized. So, But I, I love the picture on here. Uh, <laughs> yes. If yeah. water is a memory, then homeopathy is full of shit. Homeopathy, shit and sugar. So I I did like that. So so this is a win. This is this is, this is good news. Um, the retraction's on here. There's more information um, about homeopathy and immunization. So good news. Exactly. All right. I just saying it's a step in the right direction. Just simply because it's they can't prove their claims, so they're not being allowed to, allowed to advertise it. And which is great. And they can't right. scientifically prove it. <laughs> Okay. okay. So, school gardens and people, people... People's reactions to California's desire to have every elementary school have a garden. <laughs> so, tell me why <clears throat> why schools yeah. in California have gardens. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's not an unusual um, idea to put gardens in schools. A lot of Montessori schools, um, which are generally pre-kindergarten, preschool age have um, gardens. Um, the idea is that working in a garden gives children hands-on experience with how things grow, the work that goes into growing food, experiencing where food comes from, seeing a variety of fresh foods. And because they've worked on it and grown it themselves, they're much more likely to try a variety of the things that they're growing and take a certain amount of pride in, hey, I grew this, so I'm much more likely to eat it and try new foods. It's just considered, among people who promote gardening, good for aesthetics and being outside and fresh air and just kind of whole body experiences of working in a garden. And so in California, there's a woman named Alice Waters who I can't say that I had heard of before, but apparently she's a famous restaurateur. And um, so she was going along one day, saw this school that had this empty lot next to it, and she said, you know what? That would be a great place for a garden. So she um, has really jumped into the California school system, trying to promote gardens, um, getting various elementary schools to grow gardens and having them incorporate that into their curriculum. And California has a program called the Edible Schoolyard Program, um, and I think Waters kind of inspired this, that um, they would like to see all of their elementary schools. The Edible Schoolyard Program would like to see all elementary schools have some sort of garden. 
And so this woman from the Atlantic magazine uh, named Caitlin Flanagan. Flanagan. (laughs) She wrote an article called Cultivating Failure. And she talks about how promoting the idea of gardens is failing our most at-risk children because we're not pushing them to reach Shakespeare and the Crucible in elementary school. <laughs> the article itself is very condescending on so many levels that, that you know, I, I, I found it insulting. It just drove me crazy to read her. I, I, it seemed like every time she turned around, it's like putting down the creative aspects of it, just and saying you have to focus on just the academic, straight, pure, unedited academic areas of school, particularly any school, any kid enjoying school if it was done that manner. Yeah, it does seem like she missed the point of having those gardens, that it escaped her. Yeah, and that's how I felt also. And, you know, she mentions a couple things, like I said, the crucible, um, because she's talking about how the children who have these gardens, um, specifically she was talking about um, and Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Berkeley. And so she said uh, in science they used the garden for measuring and so they were writing recipes, and so the writing activities tied back into the garden. And she says that, you know, writing a recipe is so much easier than writing a critical analysis of the crucible. <laughs> and I find that insulting on a lot of levels because every writing has to be well-organized, and a recipe especially has to be well-organized. There has to be steps that go in order, or you could completely mess up what you're doing. It's about the right ratios of ingredients. in, And so to disregard writing a recipe as actual writing with value, I found insulting. But also, these programs are aimed at elementary and middle schools. They're not aiming them at high schools, which is where you would be studying the Crucible and Shakespeare. So... <clears throat> I don't know. Even yeah. even in high even in the high school, I can see some benefit to this. And certainly, writing a recipe is a good right. act of technical writing. Well, I, you know, as someone who's trying to become a writer, I know how hard it is to get my thoughts out there. And I can see something like a recipe being kind of a good thing for kids to get started on. You know, you say, "Okay, explain how you would make that, and make it so that someone else could take what you wrote and follow your instructions." Well, then beyond yeah, that, definitely. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, just looking about the chemistry that goes into it, if you, particularly for, you know, baking and stuff like that, why do these things interact right. the way that they do? So she's, Exactly, and, and gardens right. themselves, um, food science is huge. Gardens have a lot of science going on behind them, and not everybody can grow a garden. Um, another thing that these programs are trying to promote are community involvement, parent involvement. The program has put together a big compendium of lesson plans that help to promote the garden's use in classroom and so that you're tying things together. Um, And one of the quotes from this compendium says that some families, particularly those from other countries, may feel uncomfortable when asked to help out at school because their English skills or educational background do not give them a solid classroom footing. For these families, the living classroom of a garden can be a much more inviting environment in which to engage in their children's education. And Caitlin Flanagan goes on to say that this is patronizing and she associates it with uh, Jim Crow South and, and sharecropping. And this is where we all find it to be really patronizing against the growing of food that she's constantly talking about and associating it with child labor and forcing them to to grow their own food as if it's we're trying to force them into being migrant farm workers for the rest of their lives. And I, I don't understand how she can miss the fact that it's a part, it's not the whole thing. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that when families are involved with their children's school, the children do better. And you build a sense of community, a sense of relationships between teachers and parents. And teachers and parents are much more likely to problem solve when there are issues with the children if they feel comfortable talking to each other. So for her to find it patronizing kind of misses the point of, 
yeah, we've got some parents who don't feel comfortable coming into the school. We want to bring them in because we know that if they're there, their children feel more comfortable, they feel more comfortable, and kids do better. Okay. So do you, is there, have we established um, the article there? I think we've established okay. uh, I actually have a couple points on it. What? I've okay. got a couple points on it. Can, can you make them quick? And Because I want to move on to the rebuttal. Um, you want to move on to yeah. So if you so if you want to make each want to make make a statement, that's fine. And then let's move on to the rebuttal. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the things that she cites in here is a migrant farm worker who fights his way to America, basically wanders from place to place illegally, has a child. That child goes to the American school system and. The migrant farm worker has been basically on his knees picking lettuce, and he sends his child to school so the child can be on his knees picking lettuce. And I actually found that this part of the article kind of won me over. I I remember back when I was in college, I had an anthropology teacher. I thought he was the greatest guy in the world, but he had people come in and teach us about uh, chipping stone tools out of rocks. He had us. He had people come in with. Uh, at ladles, which is a method of throwing a spear faster and farther than by hand. So we could test out at ladles on a football field and see how far we could throw a spear to see if we could, you know, essentially to figure out what our ancestors went through in order to bring down game. I thought at the time he was the greatest guy in the world, but now I realize that my ancestors struggled to get out of that life. And now I'm really, really insulted. <laughs> I shouldn't have had to do that in class. Uh, all right. And I paid for it because it was college. <laughs> Ian, did you have something to add? Okay. Uh, well, uh, the, the, she quotes um, Theodore Sizer in the article. Apparently in his 1984 book, Horace's Compromise, he says, If students have yet to meet the fundamental standards of literacy, numeracy, and civil understanding, programs should focus exclusively on these. Some critics will argue that the school must go beyond these subjects to hold the interest of the pupils, but a 14-year-old who is semi-literate is an adolescent in need of intensive focused attention. In my experience, a 14-year-old who is semi-literate probably got that way because he got bored of the, how focused and exclusive those programs were in school and would actually do much better having programs such as the gardening thing where he can actually kind of enjoy it and learn at the same time and get the right mix so that he's not bored, he's not burnt out, he's not feeling frustrated and pressured. So, you know, I, I, I want, I'd love to know where Theodore Sizar comes from saying that and if he's actually done any, did any actual study to see if there was a difference because I don't see that be, being there in education. I don't remember it for me. No one I know was there. The people that got burnt out of school were burnt out of school because they weren't enjoying school. They didn't want to just sit back and do the um, standard fundamental programs. They wanted to have other stuff going on to keep their interest alive. And perhaps something that promoted inclusion like this would have kept them in school. <laughs> Quite right. possibly. Oh. Sure. Okay. Be being a scout leader, one thing I've noticed is if you get a program going where everyone's participating, everyone's working on something, there's less boundaries. They get along much better that way. It it's a great way for kids and parents to sit back and get to know each other and actually have relationships because they, they have to break down the boundaries or something like that. Okay. Um, to answer the Theodore Sizer question, he was um, an educator, and he, he started a um, school movement called um, Essential Schools, and so they really focused on just the essentials, um, basically. Uh, so there's a whole school movement, and they've got a coalition of schools and what have you. So um, he was an educator, he was a teacher, but he also spent a lot okay. of his time at the collegiate level and what have you. But his book talks about burnout and Horace's compromise is basically that the children get burned out, the teacher get burned out, and they just kind of quietly compromise into we're going to do the bare minimum to get by because we don't, we're not inspired anymore. And so I find it ironic that a program that can inspire aesthetics and, you know, sense of wonder and sense of beauty is being associated with burnout and um, kids not doing well academically. I also have a quick quote I wanted to read. Um, uh, talk, no, never mind. I'm not going to read the quote. A lot of aesthetics, a lot of art and beauty and Shakespeare 
they're inspired by real life. And so to kind of segregate children's learning into we're just going to learn reading, we're just going to learn writing, we're just going to learn arithmetic, that's not how our brains learn the best. The more associations we can make across subjects and the more sensory input we have into things, the better we remember and retain information. So, yeah, I think she missed a point. Uh, there is a rebuttal to it called Failure to Cultivate on the um, gather.com, which looks like a foodie magazine, um, and we'll post links so people can read the response to that. But uh, I think it's probably time to move on. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move on to our logical fallacy segment. Actually, I do want to address one thing that's in the article, the rebuttal article, <laughs> because it does segue into our logical fallacy segment. Okay. okay. Um, he, uh, he basically cites the fact that her essay, and particularly the parts of the essay and the misuse of statistics, the statistics in question are the fact that the grades have gone up since the gardens, but her her statement is that the grades have gone up since the gardens because now school is easier because they're just gardening. It's not, it's not as hard as it's there for. If it was as hard as it was, their grades would still be bad. That's the yeah, argument in question. The logical fallacy is a post hoc ergo proctor hoc argument. Uh, it essentially, if it comes along with, it is therefore caused by this. As a guy who doesn't come close to having a green thumb, uh, seriously, my thumb is as brown as it gets when it comes to gardening. I can tell you for a fact gardening is not easy. <laughs> I cannot get it to grow no matter how hard I try. So, yeah. You're trying to say the gardening is easy? Yeah, lady, get out there and actually try it and see how good you are at it. I've seen his lawn. I'll attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen his lawn, too. Actually, the big problem with his lawn is that the neighbor's grass gets into it. <laughs> that is a problem, isn't it? He gets into his weeds. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So, so All we right. have. So anyway, the, logical so fallacies. Ergo, what is it? Ergo proctor hoc. Post hoc ergo proctor. Post hoc ergo proctor. It follows. Therefore, was caused by. Okay. It follows. Yeah, okay. You see two things together, and you assume that one was caused by the other. Because they're. But it's close a faulty assumption because they're not necessarily. It's a faulty assumption because you can't even begin to guess. You know. It's the whole uh, wash my car and it rains argument. So it's a, also <laughs> a false premise as well. Yes. Okay. All right. So I've chosen three logical fallacies that I think are pretty common. And uh, so I've chosen special pleading, appeal to authority, and the ad hominem attack. Because I felt that these three particular were were used a lot, and we see them a lot in, um, in bad arguments. So we'll start with uh, special pleading. Okay. So the idea of special pleading is that um, they say the rules are X, X's are generally Y's, Y is an X, X is an exception to the rule because I, where I is irrelevant characteristic. Therefore, Y is not Y, or X is not Y. So the idea Well, again, you know, but we can get away with this one because it really doesn't apply to us. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, everybody else is wrong. But I'm right because of this, or exactly, or well, or this. This is my argument. It's essentially, it says that it says that the person who's making the argument, even though under ordinary circumstances would be wrong, but he's under special rules. Right. So um, if, if I make a statement that is, <laughs> if I make a statement that's unscientific, but I'm not a scientist, so for some reason it's okay for me to make that argument because I'm not a scientist. Right. Right. One of the examples they cite in there is the example of the the speed limit is absolute, but consideration is given to police officers and their families who are speeding for professional courtesy reasons. There's nothing logical about it. It, ha it happens every day, but it's not a logical thing. It just happens because because it happens. But it's not cheating because I was in a different zip code. There you go. What's ha what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Stays in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now this is this is one that we hear a lot: appeal to authority. And this this one's uh, this one is you got to be careful with because there are times when it is okay to appeal to an authority. I think. And Brian really knows what he's talking about on this, so you listen to him. <laughs> exactly. 
So the appeal to authority is, you know, authority A believes that P is true, therefore P is true. And this isn't always the case. But I don't know this one's this one's difficult because there are people that are authorities on things. Their view on this is probably better because of you know education or research that they have done. But I think most but, authorities would still say, "Well, I think it might follow that this, this, this." But we should probably do more research to find out if it's true. Hopefully, if they're saying it, they can back it up with research. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Well, that's the thing. If you look at if you look at what's in there, it says, quote, it is not what the man of science believes that distinguishes, but how and why he is. So in, in this case, uh, if you look at it, it's not necessarily the information they give, but what they back up that information. You know, what evidence they have, what logic they're using that should be right. more important. So, so particularly if somebody is, and we, we see this a lot, I, I think we see this a whole lot with global warming, that one scientist will come out and say say something, and we take his word on authority, even though he might not have done the research to back it up. Exactly. And I think that's the problem. If 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 the person has done the research, and in that in that can support what he's saying, then I think he is a good authority. But I think that there's a lot of bad authorities who will have some sort of education, say something that they haven't done the research to back it up. Like the um. The hospital being built near the federal center. Well, this was a good one because um, the hospital being built near, near towards the federal center, that that area has had radioactive materials and stuff like that buried on it. And she was saying that that they not were, me, not not you, the the lady who wrote the arc, article. And unfortunately, I don't have it. She was saying that they were digging up all these chemicals and everybody, you know, all these people that were at risk. And she wanted to actually go as far as say is everybody in Lakewood is at risk. This was um, published, uh, what, Fox News did this um, here in Denver. And yeah. the problem was is that she had some credentials, but she hadn't done the science. She hadn't actually done the soil samples. She didn't actually know the radiation was there. They were they, And the article was saying that we should believe her because she has these degrees. But yet she didn't actually do the science. So Yeah, she it, had nothing to back it up. It was just kind of a, a thought problem. Well, right. it could happen. Exactly. So she's got... So she's got the degrees, but she didn't do the work. So she's she's basing her work on other people. We no, no, no. She's basing. But I believe her... it because I saw it on Oprah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we can leave Oprah out of this one. No, no but she. The but the yeah, that's important. Yeah, people can but have the, the link. The article, right? The article yeah, well, specifically said. That, you know, the article told you to believe her because she had the, the credentials to do the science, but she hadn't done it. Right. Yeah, I, well, I've seen it even worse than that. I've been on a de, de, um, online stuff where I've tried to give people advice, and I've been told by um, this one lady who called herself Pastor B that I, um, my advice was no good because I, I'm not a pastor. I haven't done the same teaching she has. And so all her advice is so much better than my advice because she went um, is a um, official pastor with her um, church. And I'm saying like, okay, you know, your title doesn't mean anything to me, especially <laughs> since I don't get advice. I, you know, you, you can throw that title around all you want. If your advice sounds stupid to me, I'm going to tell you it's stupid. Don't try and just tell me because you have title, you have better advice than I do. And of course, that's one of the main reasons why I went and became an ordained minister. It's like, okay, look, I have a title also. Guess what? Exactly. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go ahead and move on to the ad hominem attack. Ad hominem, ad hominem attack. Yes. So, so the ad hominem attack is essentially attacking the man. Um, this is the fallacy of personal attack. And they like to do this to Darwin, especially. They like to they like to try and say Darwin's a racist, so evolution is not true. <laughs> and so there's a lot of ad hominem attacks there at Darwin, and they also so like to try and compare Darwin to Hitler. How and, does that one work? They didn't oh. have the same mustache. Yeah, they, <laughs> they didn't have even remotely the same mustache. They, they like to say that you know basically Hitler was using Darwin's theory of uh, um, of evolution, you know, in 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 justifying his experiments. I think. So they try and link Darwin and Hitler and try to discredit him that way. So another ad hominem. Well, they attack. don't. Uh, they don't vilify Nietzsche, the philosopher. But Hitler used Nietzsche's philosophy just as much as he used anything from Darwin. 
All right. So, Ian, talk to us about the banana. <laughs> yeah, the okay. Darwin thing and evolution goes right to it. Yes, very much so. Um, one um, is um, the way of the master.com, basically headed up by Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. Um, if you've watched any of their stuff, I hope you have enough sense to realize just how full of it these guys are and how they, they're, anything they present seems to be seems to be about as poorly thought out as possible. I could honestly go on for hours just dissecting their one evolution video okay. from their site. So, but let, let's, this is where this is coming. Let, let's talk about about the, this one particular the banana. Yeah, the banana. Yes. So in apparently in the evolution video and apparently in Ray Comfort's um tour that he does, I guess he does a tour where he goes around and talks to people people who want to hear his nonsense and that people actually pay for it which surprises me well it, but, it, um, it isn't he, surprising because this this <laughs> material is specifically targeting um this material is specifically targeting people who already believe in creation all it is doing is is a is affirming their beliefs it it, it this is confirmation bias this is not about it's right. really not about it's about converting people who who already believe in evolution all it's doing is is giving evolutionists a good feeling, you know, like like they are right. Evolutionist a good feeling. I'm or sorry. Or All it's doing is giving creationists a good feeling about what they're saying. I'll be. I know that the, that the way of the master on their site they 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 talk about, um, you know, how to talk to your friend who believes in evolution or talk to your uh, talk to an atheist and try and help them. But all these are is is tools that. That um, reinforce their bias. That's that's really what this is for. It's not really about converting um, evolutionists because if it was, right. they would have actually thought about the science that they're proposing here. Yeah. Anybody anybody who's actually looking at evidence and science is not going to fall victim to this. It's it's too blatant. Yes. And, right. And the banana thing is a perfect example of this. Um, in the video, Ray Comfort calls the banana the atheist nightmare. He then talks about how the banana fits perfectly in the hand. It has a non-stick um, surface. It's easy to peel. Uh, it's biodegradable. It fits perfectly in the mouth. And if you watch any of the videos where he's showing you how it fits per perfectly in your mouth, I will never understand how he does not understand how homoerotic he's being, but that's a whole different subject. Well, even when, um, he, put, yeah, exactly. when he puts it into the hand, it's the same thing. <laughs> yes. But, wait, um, wait, he goes so, on tour and does videos. He does videos of waving around a banana suggestively. Yes. Well, now the banana's my yeah, well, nightmare, too. Well, and on YouTube, you'll find yeah, people you, making it even more suggestive with a bit of editing. Yeah. Yes. And if, if you see he uh, on the site, you can actually find a, him doing a, uh, one of his live, you know, with, with an audience. And he really takes a bit out and puts it right into his mouth and in and out a couple times. And you're like, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought this was some sort of Christian lecture, not a um, soft core porno. Okay, go on, go on to the point here. <laughs> okay, yeah. Anyways, so, anyways, he talks about how uh, all the evidence points to the banana being the perfect creation of God. And how God created this perfect thing for people. As far as I can figure, uh, Mr. Comfort there did not take, you know, the five, ten minutes he should have taken to actually research the history of the banana. Because the history of the banana, if we go off of what God created, God created this um, kind of squat thing, doesn't fit in the hand very well at all, had big, huge seeds in it, is basically inedible by man. Humans themselves cannot eat a natural wild banana. No. no, nothing about it is edible for us. No, and what I, happened was, I've actually put um in the show notes. Though there will be a link to the picture of uh, of a wild banana. Basically, what happened was um we cultivated the banana. Humans took the banana, took two different types of natural bananas, cultivated them together to reduce seed size, and um get some of the desirable traits of banana going, and created what nowadays are known as the cooking bananas. And these were generally red and green bananas. And uh, I've never tried what my understanding is they're very potato-like. Well, the yeah, plantain yeah, is a very good example like a plantain. of that. Yeah. And basically, um, the, the advantage of the banana was you could grow them all over the place, and they have no season. So 
it, obviously it's the perfect thing. You're, you're expanding your colonies and stuff. It's the perfect thing to take with you. And so, you know, bananas spread really quick because of that. But you didn't eat them raw. You cooked them. Well, then, um, in 1836, on a Jamaican plantation, um, Zon Francine, I don't know however it's pronounced. I'm horrible with names, so. Um, Zine Francis Pujot came out to his um, banana plants and noticed something odd. Yellow bananas. This had never been seen before. And he decided, you know, to try one. And wow, they're sweet. First time, you know, sweet banana. Hey, we can actually eat these raw now. I like them. Needless to say, it took off. This is what? part of, I was going to say, this is part of what they, um, how they say the banana, um, is, is the perfect invention of God is because, uh, because it's, uh, when it's not ripe, it's green. When it's ripe, it's yellow. And when it's overripe, it turns black. So this is part of their argument of, uh, why it's, uh, why it's, why it's yeah. the atheist nightmare. Yeah, but the modern sweet yellow banana that everyone knows and everyone mistakenly thinks is, you know, the natural grown banana that is out in the jungle and stuff is basically a mutation. It is modern evolution. It is historically recorded evolution. There's no other way to look at, you know, uh, uh, something going from through such a change. It is evolution of the banana. We've seen it within our lifetime. It is, you know, undeniable. Well, not within our lifetime. Sorry about that. We've seen it within human existence, I should say. Yeah, it's, you know, This it's, is 170 years ago. It, 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 it's recent enough that there's no denying that, you know, it happened. It's been recorded. You, you can't try and claim, you know, oh, well, you know, it, it's always been there. There's been no other bananas. No, we have documented this. Right. And, well, and, you know, we humans have been manipulating the ban banana for, you know, what, a thousand years longer? Oh yeah, Lo much longer than that. But you know, there's, well, there's a slight difference between us problem. manipulating them. Yeah. Oh, we do. <laughs> okay. But still, there's a difference between us manipulating them and working towards their desires, and there being a true spontaneous mutation. Okay. And so, you know, so to have something this solid, and to be told that's the atheist nightmare. Right. Well, and yeah. he so here's the thing. Well, the is the spontaneous mutation getting spread though is a perfect example of evolution. Yes. Oh yeah. So here's a so here's a, so we've got what what we've got is we've got a banana that humans have manipulated to a point where we can eat it. We we have we have genetically altered this banana. We have selectively bred it so that we can eat it the way that it is. So what fallacy is this? I'm going slippery slope on this one because it's talking about the banana peel. False premise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm saying I also think it's a false premise. Be, the, their premise isn't sound. Is that is that right? I think it's a false premise. Well, it may also be uh, it may also be the postdoc we were talking about too. But I'm thinking false premise is the strongest. Sure, slippery slope. But there is some slippery slope yeah. in here too because they start off with a false premise and then they just keep beating that false premise until they're so far out on left field that there is just nothing that's even rational about it any longer. Right. So he started with a, an assumption with no background whatsoever to the actual history and facts about it. And just kept going in whatever direction he felt like. Okay. So, mm -hmm. so there we go. So we actually. Now, so I think that there's probably some other fallacies in there that we can get to later. But I think that uh, the easiest one for us to identify right now is the is the non sequitur, um, and probably the slippery slope fallacy. So those are. Pretty. Uh, I think we nailed those pretty well. Now, here's a here's a thought, and it, it could be that the banana is actually God's perfect creation. Oh boy! But because we can't see it, maybe we're not. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's what he's really trying to prove. So, <laughs> we should check on that with him. Absolutely. All right. So I think that we've covered this pretty well. I think that uh, uh, that we've covered everything we want to talk about today. I think so. All right. I think so. All right. So that's it. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Us. All right. Bye now. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Contact information for Amateur Skeptics can be found at AmateurSkeptics.com. Music for this podcast was provided by OMF. Learn more about OMF at MySpace.com forward slash OMFHQ. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is released under a Creative Commons No Derivative 3.0 license. We'd love to have you share our work with other people. Please don't change or edit the file. If only you